Jobcast, NAM 2013 Special Edition, with Christina Smith. Hello and welcome to the Jobcast. I'm Christina Smith, and this month, instead of the usual extra show, we are bringing you a special episode about the National Astronomy Meeting that was held in St Andrews between the 1st and the 5th of July. Throughout NAM, there was loads of interesting and cutting-edge science discussed in the plenary talks, the parallel sessions, and on the posters. And this covered everything from cosmology right the way through to our own solar system. And in this episode, we have a number of interviews with scientists who presented their work throughout the week, Dr. Catherine Haymans will be telling us all about dark matter. Dr. Jane Birkby talks to us about detecting water in the atmospheres of exoplanets. Dr. Claire Watt tells us about charged moon dust. And Jack O'Malley-James tells us about the last survivors of the end of the world. But first, Professor Sanjeev Gupta tells us all about the Mars rover Curiosity. I'm with Professor Sanjeev Gupta from Imperial College London. Hello and thank you for joining us. Hi there. Um, and you are giving a public lecture later on on the Mars rover Curiosity. Can you tell us a little bit about Curiosity? Well, it's pretty amazing. Here we are on a beautiful sunny day in St Andrews, and Mars today is very, very cold and not a lot going on. Curiosity is all about looking at past and ancient environments on Mars. So its key task is to look at rock successions on Mars, and try to infer from looking at those rock successions uh, what the ancient environments on Mars were like and whether they were, as has been hypothesized, environments that were warm and wet so that liquid water had once flowed on the surface of Mars. So Curiosity is, is an amazing machine because it's a geologist and a geochemist together I uh, actually worry that uh, perhaps uh, one day us field geologists will lose our jobs because these robots are so amazing. But it has a wide array of instruments on board. So lots of cameras which act as the eyes of the rover, which help us you know, drive and direct us to what we want to look at. But in addition, it's got all these amazing chemistry instruments that can analyze the chemistry of the rocks in a variety of different ways including some entirely new ways that haven't been done on other planets before, to try and reconstruct these past conditions on Mars. Okay, so one thing you mentioned there was about rock successions. Kind of, What do you mean by rock successions? Is it kind of layers of rock? or? Yeah, so the history of, for example, Earth's surface is actually recorded in rock layers. And we've all walked on beaches, maybe in Dorset and other places, where you can see these successions of rocks... And these rocks basically are time machines. They're recording the surface evolution of Earth um, through time. And geologists use their knowledge to try and infer, you know, was this rock deposited by an ancient river? Was it in an ancient lake? Or was this by a, a volcanic ash flow, for example? And we're quite good at that now. We've been doing this now for several hundred years. And we now have a really good picture of the evolution of Earth for the last few billion years. The next step is really starting to do this on other planets. And what the early rovers, the Mer rovers, showed us what the, there were rock successions and what Curiosity is really doing remarkably is trying to build up this picture and try to build up this paleo-environmental history, this ancient environmental history, for the first time on Mars. 
So it's it's up there and it, it's got all these kind of different instruments, but how does it actually kind of go about telling you this information? It, it, does it take rock samples, analyse them, or, or is it something else? Oh, it does all sorts of things, and it's a very, very complex procedure. I, I'm amazed by how complex it is. Um, and it's, it's very different. Those of you used to orbital missions, for example where you know there's different instrument teams and you do your own your job of collecting that data here this actually requires integration of the whole science team and all the engineers involved in carrying out these tasks and making sure the instruments work etc so what would happen normally is that we first work with the camera data so the first thing when we get to get to a new place we take navigation camera data these are stereo images that allow us to construct the terrain um, and produce a, a digital terrain map, sorry, an elevation map. Um, by stereo images, so you mean it kind of like two cameras, so like our own eyes, so you get depth perception. That's right, and that's very, very important to us as geologists because we want to know, obviously, how far things are, but we also want to reconstruct the thicknesses and the distances of rock units. So navigation cameras are stereo cameras, and those are mainly for, as I've said, navigation purposes, and that, that's that's what we use to pick the rock targets that we want to start analysing. There's a lot of rock on Mars, so, you know, and we're always under pressure to keep moving. There's a lot of science to do, and we're always we're always worrying that the rover might break tomorrow. So we're trying to maximise the science, so we don't ever waste any moment or any minutes of a day. So once we have the navigation cameras down, the team will then think about what targets they want to pick and what images they want to get. So the next step would be to get um, photographs, images from our mouse cam cameras. These are the geologist tools and these are colour images, very high resolution. And again, we have stereo images. We have two cameras there. And these allow us kilometres to metre scale views of the landscape, but also of the rock bodies. And we start, as geologists, we start analysing these images and reconstructing the geological history using these, but also helps us direct which direction we want to go. As I said, you know, there's a lot of rock on Mars and you've got to pick. And you've got it's, it's often hunches. You know, you say, well, I, this looks interesting. I see some layers over there. That could be a good place to go to. And we'll argue and debate this. And then we'll decide we'll drive in that direction. And then as you drive closer and closer to a target, you'll get more and more images closer and you, you start seeing more detail. Do you pick particularly large rocks or is it a hint of a pattern or is it anything particularly unusual about it? Well, because Curiosity is uh, a mission about habitability, so it's looking at layers in terms of the ancient environments. We're really looking at sedimentary rocks. That's what we're really interested in. So we, the first thing we look for is layering, because layering is a key sign of perhaps sorting by water or by air. Um, and then as we get closer and as we're at an outcrop, if it looks really interesting, we will then start doing drilling activities. And that's what we've actually spent much of the last six months doing, is we found some very interesting rocks, um, mudstones. And um, this was partly an engineering task, but first drilling activities on another planet so huge operation but also obviously we chose a scientifically interesting rock and in addition to all the cameras the geochemistry instruments there's some remote geochemistry instruments so one of these is a laser the chemcam laser and this can shoot a a laser pulse up to seven meters away and produce a plasma in the rock and it looks at the spectra in that plasma and you know it's a semi-quantitative measure of the elemental chemistry 
it can do that from that far away. Yeah, seven meters. And um, so we use this as a remote sensing tool, basically. And it's great to have because we can't, again, look at every single rock. Then there's an alpha particle X-ray spectrometer that, again, gives us another remote sensing tool, um, gives us elemental chemistry. And that, that's been on previous rovers, for example. What's really new with Curiosity is that it has the ability to ingest material. Ingest material? Yes. It can take um, soil or rock powder and take it inside Curiosity and put it into two amazing instruments. So the first instrument is called Chemin, and that's X-ray diffraction. So X-ray diffraction, you're basically passing X-rays through uh, minerals, and because minerals have a particular crystal structure, the X-rays will diffract in particular ways. So we can, what we can do with this is that we're not guessing the mineralogy. This gives us the precise mineralogy and the proportions of different minerals in a rock. And this is the first time this has ever been done. Almost, we did the first X-ray diffraction almost 100 years to the day that it was done on Earth by the Braggs in Manchester. So, you know, we weren't surprised by the results. Obviously, Mars is a basaltic planet. It's a volcanic planet. So, you know, we have olivines and all these other volcanic minerals. But to have that accurately was great, and it wasn't model-driven. The other amazing instrument, and this is astonishing, it's about the size of a large microwave oven, and it has three mass spectrometers in it. It's called SAM, Sample Analysis at Mars. And what this does is it takes in sample, so it could be rock powder uh, from our drilling activities or soil collected, and it, it's put into a crucible, and it's then heated up to very, very high temperatures, and this analyzes the gases given off. So obviously, you know, missions to Mars are all about discovering not just habitability, but obviously discovering evidence for past life. We're not there yet at the moment, but we're looking for complex organic compounds. And so these gases, if there were complex organic compounds present in the rock or the soil, we would be able to detect that with SAM. So finding complex organic compounds, so these are long-chain carbon, you know, things um wouldn't be evidence for life but it's a hint that we're getting closer so you you, you can you can form these compounds by different methods etc so it, it doesn't mean in situ life was present but you know it's a step-by-step -step process okay and does it do it all entirely automatically or does it have to kind of be remote controlled to do this no no we have to command everything it's so complex and what we don't want to have happen is something goes wrong with the command so everything is very very carefully triaged and that's a complex procedure you know running sam is really really difficult and obviously they want to change the temperature settings how high and different ways of modeling it so it's a very complex procedure and it's just amazing how the team interacts and works on this is there any issue with the delay that would be something like from signals going to mars and back again okay so we don't work in real time so there is obviously a delay we don't work in real time what actually happens is that for example as a geologist i would suggest a series of activities that we could do and maybe take photographs of a rock outcrop, maybe look at the rock outcrop with our hand lens camera, for example. And then these are turned into a sequence of commands by the engineers, which are then uplinked to the rover. And then these are carried out the next day on Mars, basically. So we don't do it in real time. Okay. So, so yeah, they're all, the commands are all kind of stored. Yeah. And, and, then... and we get the data coming back uh, the next day or the following day so we can see how it worked out. Okay, that's that's amazing that you can do that so far away. How long has um, Curiosity actually been on Mars carrying out all these this exploration? So we're actually coming up to our one-year anniversary. Okay. 
So it landed on the 6th of August last year. So it's pretty amazing that uh, we've almost been there for a year and getting amazing results. How long is it expected to be there? So it's actually powered by a plutonium battery. <laughs> so, I mean, the limitation on the previous rovers, which actually went on for a very, very long time, was that they were uh, powered by solar panels. So with a plutonium battery, it could go on for a very, very long time. It's likely that the other instruments will wear out. But in a sense, we don't really think about that. Um, there's so many things that could possibly go wrong. You know, could have a mobility failure, a wheel could break, or we could run into a rock or something like that. I mean, there are lots of fail-safes. So, you know, we can't, it's difficult to drive into a large rock because the whole rover goes into safe mode. But we, we basically live each day as it comes and we try and maximize the science we can gain each day because there's so much to do. Did it land in a particular place so that there was particular rock formations there? Okay, yeah, absolutely. And this is a very, very careful process. You know, you have to remember that um, this rover cost $2.7 billion dollars. It's the most expensive space mission ever and the most complex. So there was a whole process lasting a few years of landing site selection. And this was a sort of public science thing that any scientists who wanted to propose, you know, working on Mars or whatever, who wanted to propose a landing site could do so. And they would start it off with 50, something like 50 landing sites. Then people gave talks about this. And, you know, the people in the audience would discuss this and discuss the priorities and the pros and cons and this was you know people would have votes on these landing sites and eventually got whittled down to four landing sites and we went through all of the four landing sites I'd actually been working on one of the other ones that wasn't selected but they chose Gale Crater so Gale Crater is the landing site it's a, a crater that's 120 kilometers wide sits on the at near the equator on the Martian dichotomy. And it's a very, very interesting crater. And the reason we've gone there is that in the middle of this crater, there is a mountain five kilometers high that's made out of, of what appear to be layered sedimentary rocks. And we have very, very high-resolution images of Mars now. You can see blocks of rocks that are two meters in diameter from these orbital images. And so we were able to do a lot of the planning off the landing sites and look at interesting places that geologists would like to go to prior to landing. And obviously, geologists like to go to really rough terrain with lots of cliffs, and engineers don't like to go to those places. But Gale was great, and because the mission had this very specific landing system, this incredible landing system, we could actually define a very narrow uh, ellipse for landing, uh, which was a flat plane within, the, you know, in this on the sides of Gale Crater, within between the rim and the central mount in the middle of Gale Crater. You mentioned it had quite a, a, a specialised landing system. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, yeah, so it was the, the whole procedure was called by NASA the seven minutes of terror. Um, basically, what they did, obviously Mars is a very thin atmosphere, so it's difficult to slow uh, a lander down with just a parachute and previous missions have used airbags and the trouble with airbags is you can't predict where they're going to go so you can't have a narrow ellipse so what they had is they had this system where once the parachute was jettisoned the landing craft which was holding the rover actually had retro rockets holding it in place and the rover was actually lowered down to the surface on nylon tethers nylon tethers that's right so they called this the sky crane and you know Obviously, they couldn't test this on Earth, 
So it, it was just incredible. I, I'm not sure the science team believed it would work, but it was just an incredible experience to be there and have this happen successfully. That's incredible that they can do that because I know they, that before it was it was airbags and then they'd bounce and all yeah. this sort of stuff. So it's been there for about a year now. Are there any science results, any preliminary results from, from the rover? Yeah, there have been some pretty amazing results. And, you know, early results are often serendipitous. But again, because we had the orbital imagery, we were able to make predictions. And the one thing that all the geologists on the team were doing uh, in the months prior to landing was actually using the orbital images to make a, a geological map. And obviously, because we didn't know exactly where we would land, we all had the little squares that we mapped. And that allowed us to be able to predict anywhere in the landing ellipse where there was some interesting geology that we could go and look at. So once we landed, we had to make a decision of where we were going to do the first science. And some people wanted to go and drive straight to the mountain. But that would have been a long time of driving without doing any science. And it would have been a bit boring, really. And what we saw in close to the landing site were some layered rocks. Still a drive, you know, about 500 meters. So it's, that's quite a distance for a rover to drive on terrain when you haven't been driving. So we started driving towards that. And very soon, almost in the first month, we discovered these rock layers. And what's very interesting with this was that actually we often took pictures because we couldn't really see the rock layers from the navigation camera images. And we would take pictures. And then after we'd driven away, we would find out what was in the pictures. And what we discovered was that these rock layers contained rounded pebbles. Rounded pebbles? Yeah, so pebbles are you know, a few centimetres in diameter. And, now, and this is what a rock that geologists call a conglomerate. Uh, and the paper on this has just come out actually a few weeks ago, and that's the first science paper from Curiosity. So one gets rounding in pebbles... So when you look at the surface of Mars, most of the rocks are angular because they've been made by, you know, impacts, basically, you know, meteorites impacting the surface, breaking up the rocks into small fragments. But these are all angular. Rounding occurs when there's fluid flow and abrasion of the particles of the class. And this is classic feature that we find in rivers on Earth. Now, these pebbles are too large to have been moved by wind action. So it's difficult to to infer any other process but but water transport. So it's it's evidence for there being water or at least some sort of liquid flowing. Yeah. Yeah, and you know we know that there's water ice on Mars. Uh, there's no present day liquid water. Now because this is in a rock rather than just loose, this tells us that this was actually not in a present day Mars or recent past but actually a long time ago, maybe several billion years ago. So what it's telling us and you know these are very simple observations for geologists like oh in fact, you know, at first we thought, well, this is pretty basic, you know, what's so exciting about this? And then it took us a bit of time to do Oh, wow, this is the first time. You know, we've all had, you know, sometimes you hear this, you know, oh, it's water on Mars again. But we're building up the evidence. So it's a little bit like a detective kind of providing clues. So we've had all this orbital imagery, but we've never actually had any evidence from real rocks. So this is the first time we've had evidence from real rocks of particles being transported by water and then what it allows you to do is very cleverly is make estimates you know these are back of the envelope calculations but we know something about the the flow velocities the shear stresses required to lift pebbles up into a water flow so we can actually back calculate what the water velocities were and we sort of, you know it's very rough and ready uh, but we estimate that the these ancient martian rivers were at this location were flowing at sort of walking pace and we think that the water depths may have been 
ankle to hip deep. That's incredible that you can tell that from observations that that far away of, of pebbles in inside another rock. Yeah, I mean, the, the key thing is that physics works on Earth and Mars. It's no different. And we have all this knowledge and we can do it. I mean, it's something that my first year students, I do with my first year students. We, we look at some in the field, we look at some class and we estimate the flow velocities and we're just applying this to another planet. And, you know, what was interesting is that we didn't have the, some of our highest resolution cameras working when we passed these things. So we're looking forward. We're now driving back towards the mountain and hopefully going to pass some more of these rocks and uh, look at them. That's brilliant. And that, you said that's coming out really soon, that paper. The paper's just come out. Um, it was in Science uh, um, in um, late May. So that's out and you can read that. And the other result has been actually from our drilling activities. So we, we drove to this place where we could see these beautiful layered uh, sediments. We call this place Yellowknife Bay. Uh, always hopeful. <laughs> and, you know, the debate on the team had been, are these volcanic lava flows, which wouldn't be of much interest for habitability and, you know, biosignatures, whatever, or were they sedimentary deposits? And what we discovered were, again, that these layers were made up of sandstones, so sand turned into rock that's been transported by rivers, we believe. And then we found these mudstones, and mudstones are very, very fine-grained rocks. And they usually fall form um, from very fine clay particles falling out of suspension in a standing water body. So we've analysed these rocks and we think that they're an ancient, very shallow lake, perhaps. And we drilled these rocks. And so again, as I mentioned, this is the first time we've ever drilled on another planet and we've got some beautiful results. So firstly, we get the, the general chemistry. So we've drilled two drill holes and we get this general chemistry of basaltic planet. But in addition, what we've discovered is from the chemin results of the X-ray diffraction is that these rocks also contain about 30% clay minerals. And clay minerals are very interesting because clays, these are smectite clays, clays are hydrated minerals. So they've got water molecules attached to them and what they tell us is about this past aqueous environment. And clay minerals on Earth form uh, as a result of weathering of rocks. That, you know, they're the most abundant minerals on Earth because we have an abundant water cycle on Earth. So what we believe that these clay minerals are formed from is weathering uh, due to a, a water cycle. Not Probably not huge, not like Earth, but at least, uh, you know, some water flowing on the surface of Mars that has um, weathered basalt to clay minerals. And, you know, whilst we've detected clay minerals in other places on Mars... Um, from orbit, that's an orbital observation. That's never been ground truth, and this is the first ground truth thing of Kramer. So that's a hugely exciting result. And it's important also for this search for life because organic matter can be preserved in clay minerals, and so that's a good place to potentially find uh, evidence for complex organic compounds. So that's really the, the place for that to be focused. Yes. Wow, that's, those are two incredible results that, that have happened so quickly. I mean, it's only been up there for a yeah. year. So what do you have planned for the future in, with this rover? Well, today's actually quite an exciting day. It's Wednesday, the 3rd of July, and we are hopefully doing beginning our big drive. So the last three weeks, we've been working on an outcrop called Shayla, and I've been leading large parts of that. It's been really exciting three weeks. We've worked really hard and we've got absolutely amazing data. But this is the last outcrop for some time 
that we're going to do really detailed science on. Our goal now is to drive to the foothills of Mount Sharp, this five kilometer high mountain, because there are some really interesting features there. In the foothills we have rock layers that we can detect clay minerals and sulfate minerals from orbit, so they must be in high abundance. And this is very exciting because, firstly, clays tell us there was a lot of water, sulfates tell us there was less water. So perhaps this is recording an ancient environmental change, maybe a past climate change on Mars, and we'd like to reconstruct this. Now it's about 10 kilometers away, but it's going to take us many, many months to drive there, and we've decided that we're just going to drive there straight and we're not going to look at random things on the way. We may have a few stops, but most of it's, you know, putting our foot down and really, really dr driving and getting there. So today is the beginning of that adventure. Well, I hope everything goes absolutely perfectly with the long drive and everything. And yeah, I just, I hope Curiosity keeps creating lots more science and scientific results. So thank you very much for telling us all about Curiosity. Thank you very much indeed. That was excellent. Joining me now is Dr. Catherine Haymans from the University of Edinburgh. Hello and thank you for joining us. You gave the plenary lecture on um, observing the dark universe. So can you first of all tell us what you mean by the dark universe? Okay, so less than about 5% of our universe is made up of the stuff that uh, we're familiar with on Earth. So the stuff that you and I are made up of, the Earth, the Moon, the stars, our solar system, our galaxy, the stuff that we can see, that's less than 5% of our universe and the rest is dark. Uh, it's made up of two components, something that we call dark matter, that makes up roughly about a quarter of the universe, and the rest is dark energy, which is causing the accelerated expansion of our universe. Okay, so... Dark matter, that kind of, in my head, makes me think of something that's kind of like our matter, but slightly different. Am I on the right lines? <laughs> yep, you're on the right line. So it says what it is on the can. It's dark, it's invisible. Now, it doesn't interact like the, the particles that you have in your chemistry lab, for example. Um, so there's no sort of chemical interactions. We say that it's a weakly interacting matter particle. And really, the only way that we experience dark matter is through its gravitational force. So let's take our own Milky Way galaxy. We've got lots of stars spinning round in our own Milky Way galaxy, if there wasn't a giant halo of dark matter uh, surrounding our own Milky Way galaxies, those stars would simply fly out into the universe. We need the gravity of the dark matter around our own Milky Way galaxy to keep all of those stars spinning round and round. So by looking at the velocities of the stars, so we have to know that there is something else there. There has to be. Yeah, you can imagine, if you imagine a, a ball on a, a piece of string and you're spinning it round your head, the faster you spin that ball round your head, the tighter you're going to have to hold on to that string. That's exactly the same with the stars going round in our galaxy, except there's no string now. It's gravity. So the force of gravity is keeping all of those stars bound. And you can go and uh, count all the stars up in your galaxy. We know roughly how much a star weighs, so we know roughly how much mass is in, is in each galaxy just from the stars and there's just not enough mass there to, to keep those stars going around. There's not enough gravity if, if it's just the mass that we see. So we infer that there's this halo of dark matter. Now there's lots of other evidence for dark matter as well. Just looking at the distribution of galaxies in our universe, we wouldn't see this, this web and filamentary-like structure in the galaxies if there wasn't dark matter in our universe. And of course the most recent fantastic Planck results, which have such high significance, nail down the cosmology of our universe, and you wouldn't be able to explain those results without a weekly interacting matter particle uh, dominating the gravity in our universe. 
So you said that, that Planck sort of pinned down the cosmology of our universe. Kind of what do you mean by that? Um, so the Planck took observations of the very, very early universe, the cosmic microwave background, and it's a huge amount of data that they've taken, but they can fit that data, the, the measurements of the, the very early hot universe, with just six numbers that describe how much dark matter is in our universe, how much dark energy is in our universe, and the distribution of matter in the very early universe. That's such a small number of parameters to... to explain our universe so but um, you said you could sort of tell by the distribution of galaxies so is that sort of mapping them as as you go further out of, into the universe into the older universe yeah that's right so um, if you make a simulation of dark matter so we take our theory that dark matter is this weakly interacting matter particle we can make a simulation of the dark matter and what that tells us is we expect the dark matter to form a giant cosmic web filaments and knots and voids now because dark matter is the strong gravitational force in the universe, that's going to dictate where and when the galaxies form. So um, there's a new project called VIPERS, which has gone out and uh, taken spectra of all of the galaxies, so it's mapped out the three-dimensional distribution of galaxies. Uh, there are many projects doing this at the moment, but VIPERS is, is one of the most recent ones that's come out, so you can Google that. Um, and what you find is that the distribution of galaxies m matches what we'd expect from our cosmological simulations of dark matter. So are there any experiments that are designed to kind of try and detect this weakly interacting matter particle? Yeah, so, the, um, so we can go at this from two angles. So the, uh, my research focuses on using something called uh, gravitational lensing to detect dark matter. Now, uh, what happens is that when light travels past a dense region of dark matter, that light gets bent. That was what Einstein's theory of general relativity told us, that mass bends space and time. Now what happens is, as that light is bent, um, the, it distorts the images of distant galaxies. So we can go out and we can map very distant galaxies, and their light, as it travels towards us through all the dark matter in our universe, gets bent and distorted. So what it looks like when we look into the very distant universe, it looks like the galaxies are lining up with each other. You can imagine it as just like a, a dark matter's leaving a signature of... Uh, the fact that it's there on the images of galaxies and the more strongly aligned the galaxies are the more dark matter there is so we can use this technique to tell us where the dark matter is and how much dark matter there is there so there's a project called the Canada France Hawaii Telescope Lensing Survey uh, you can look it up on www.cfhtlens.org and there you will find the largest ever maps of dark matter that we've produced with this method and again what we find is that the dark matter is um, clumping in these knots and filaments and voids exactly as we had simulated so our theory of dark matter has been confronted by direct observations that's brilliant so how can you tell that galaxies kind of appear to be aligned because of gravitational lensing rather than if they're actually aligned? Mm. Well, that's a very good question because actually in the real universe we would expect galaxies to be slightly aligned. So when galaxies are forming, we don't really understand galaxy formation, um, but we do understand that when they're, they're forming it depends on the environment that they're in. So there's a, a theory called tidal torque theory which says that as the gas collapses and forms uh, a galaxy it gets a spin and that spin determines the shape of the galaxy. So imagine now two clumps of, ga of gas collapsing and forming a galaxy in the same 
region of the universe, they're likely to have the same sort of shape. And that's something that we have to account for in our in our measurements as well. But that's something you can do, you can distinguish between those two cases. Um, so we have to model it. Um, so we have some, um, some models of how we expect galaxies to intrinsically align. So galaxies that are physically close to each other and we have to account for that in our in our measurements as well and the work that I presented here is the first time that we've actually been able to do that um, at the same time as measuring the dark matter. How big a survey was it that you were doing? Yeah it's a, it's a 150 square degrees so um, each patch of sky we had four patches of sky so for five years the Canada France Hawaii telescope uh, surveyed these four patches of sky and they were the absolute best weather conditions to do it because it's really tough to make this measurement and um, so we've got a spring field a summer field an autumn field and a winter field and each one is roughly about the size of your palm uh, held out at length on the sky to give you an idea of scale so in the grand schemes of cosmological surveys this is actually quite small now so uh, the next project we're working on is called the killer degree survey which will be a hundred times bigger and that's already taking data so in the next few years we'll be publishing results with that and then in 10 years time we're going to have Euclid LSST which are going to be doing this type of observation routinely across the whole sky and that's going to be really fascinating to find out what results they're going to show this kilo degree survey, kind of whereabouts is that going to be based and, and, and how long is that going to run for? Yeah, so this is a brand new uh, ESO public survey. It uh, is on the VST telescope in Chile. And uh, what this telescope does is it's um, routinely surveying a large area of the southern sky and in multiple optical bands and it has a sister survey which is the taken on the vista telescope which gives us the near infrared data so it's a it's a great new um survey because it's spanning both the optical and the near infrared color so we're going to be doing lots of uh, different types of science looking at how galaxies form and evolve and the stuff that i'm working on is of course looking at using this lensing technique to map out the dark matter on both large and small scales, looking at the dark matter around galaxies and clusters. So the previous survey that was being done, is that is that still an ongoing project or has that kind of been completed? That has now been completed. So the CFHD lens survey is now uh, completed, but it took us quite some time to analyse the data because really this measurement is quite non-trivial. So you're trying to look for this alignment of galaxies, the signature that dark matter's left on the images of these galaxies. But when the light from these galaxies, they've travelled all the way through the universe and then they hit our Earth's atmosphere. So we're looking for this tiny distortion from dark matter. The light hits the atmosphere and you know the nursery rhyme, twinkle, twinkle, little star. That's just the atmosphere making things twinkle. Uh, so the, the light comes through our atmosphere, then it gets bent and distorted by our telescope. And so um, we have to understand our telescope instrumentation and atmosphere to high precision to unravel all of the, that ground-based distortion in order to get back to the signature that dark matter's left. And so there's been uh, major steps forwards in data analysis techniques in order to be able to make this measurement robustly. Um, and now we've made those developments, we're now sort of ready to go with the next big survey. Okay, so we've talked about um, the surveys that are detecting dark matter by sort of mapping galaxies. Are there any other experiments and any other surveys going on? Um, so 
we can, as astronomers, we can survey dark matter on, on the large scales. But um, you know, what we all really actually want to know is what is this particle? What is this weakly interacting matter particle? And to that, we, we pass over to the particle physicists who are working in tandem to actually try and detect this dark matter particle. Now, quite excitingly, uh, recently there's been um, a new collaboration of scientists within the UK, the UK uh, Dark Matter Consortium, who have decided now on what instrument they're going to back next, which is the Lux Zeppelin experiment. Um, now, hopefully STFC is going to fund this because it's an amazing project. Um, it's going to be nine tonnes of xenon deep under the ground, five, about 5,000 feet under the ground in South Dakota. And basically, this big chunk of xenon sits under the ground and a weakly interacting matter particle will hopefully go through our Earth and interact with one of the xenon nuclei that uh, releases some electrons which uh, then produce a little bit of light that can be detected. Now, they're weakly interacting matter particles, so it's really hard. You, most of them, you know, there's loads of dark matter particles flying through us right now, so most of them will not interact, but hopefully there'll be one direct collision, or several, <laughs> so they can detect it, and, uh, and then we will detect this dark matter particle. Uh, so construction's due to begin for that next year, uh, so that's a really exciting new development for the UK uh, direct dark matter detection community. It's brilliant that they can design something like that that will just that will hopefully um, detect this this particle. Mm -hmm. Just out of curiosity, if it doesn't detect the particle, sort of where would where would the scientists go from there? So the one thing is we, we know that the dark matter particle is weakly interacting, but we don't know how weakly interacting it is. And that's why, um, so, I mean, there have been lots of uh, projects like this over the years um, where they've tried to make this detection and they haven't made it. And so what that means is it just brings down what we call the interaction cross-section, how, how weakly interacting this particle is. Uh, so this this new project, Lux Zeppelin, is going to be nine tons. So that's a lot of of collecting area. But if that still doesn't detect anything, then that just means that this particle is even more weakly interacting than that. So they just keep building bigger and bigger detectors. We had a question in uh, in the plenary session yesterday of, well, you know, what what if it doesn't find anything? Has it all been worth it? But this sort of the technology that's being driven by this. Uh, by this quest to find the dark matter particle is worth it. You know, it's, it's really worth all of this investment, if only to develop the new technologies that's having to be designed in order to do this sort of research. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of offshoots that come from, exactly. from yeah. doing new experiments. Okay, well, thank you very much for telling us all about your amazing research, and I really hope everything goes well with the, uh, with the new experiments and the new surveys. Thank you very much. I'm here now with Dr. Claire Watts from the University of Reading and she's presenting a poster on modelling charged moon dust. First of all, what's charged moon dust and why is it a problem? So there's, um, the lunar surface is covered in dust and uh, one of the things that the uh, Apollo astronauts noticed is that the dust, whenever they went outside of the uh, module, the landing module, the dust was getting everywhere, you know, as they walked across the surface, they were kicking up clouds of moon dust, as they, certainly as they were driving the, the moon buggy across the surface, they were noticing these huge plumes of dust coming up, because the dust is sort of a few centimetres deep, and it's very, very fine, it's not like sand, it's much, much finer than that, and so 
um, one of the, the things I'm showing on the poster is a photograph of one of the astronauts who um, has been outside in a, in a sort of uh, walking along the surface. And after he's come back into the lander, he's covered in dust. His forehead is all smudged and you can see all over his clothes. And so this is dust that has gone through the spacesuit. And it was a real health hazard for the astronauts. They discovered that they were suffering from respiratory problems with lots of eye irritations and nasal irritations, and it was all down to the dust. So it was a health hazard, but also it was a really bad uh, mechanical hazard that they didn't foresee before they went onto the surface. All of this dust was getting into the bearings of their mechanical apparatus. It was a real problem for any filters, any pumps, anything that had to to operate in a mechanical way was really being affected by the dust. And so they um, came back from the lunar surface and were telling NASA that essentially dust was one of the major engineering hazards for future missions to the moon. It was something they were really going to have to sort out. So this dust was actually was literally getting through their suits. Exactly, exactly. Not only were they getting through their suits, but because the dust is, is very fine, it would become electrically charged. And so it would start clinging to their suits. They couldn't even brush it off. So because it's charged, you know, it would get into, it would get on their suits, it would get on their visors and they wouldn't be able to see properly. And for things like solar panels and other really key engineering equipment that they have on the moon, the dust was a real problem because it would immediately just cling to the surface. Cover the, I mean, if you can imagine a solar panel covered in dust, it's not going to work as well. So um, this is a, a real a real engineering problem that they didn't foresee before they got there. So is it just charged because of the, the people sort of moving around across the surface or is it charged by some other mechanism? So um, we, we believe that what's happening is because the moon has no atmosphere, it's essentially a rock out there in space with no protection, what was happening was uh, the uh, particles of the solar wind, the charged particles coming directly out of the sun, had no, there was no protection from that. And so they were bombarding the surface and that caused the particles to become charged. In addition, the sunlit surface of the moon, when it uh, is, is hit by ultraviolet radiation, it gives off electrons. This was discovered by Einstein almost 100 years ago. So what was happening is that a combination of those two processes meant that the dust became charged. And as the dust moves around on the surface, it can become charged in different ways. And so as soon as the astronauts either walked across the surface or drove across the surface, they were kicking up this charged dust. And instead of falling directly down again, the dust was essentially levitating in the air because it was all charged and all of those charges were repelling one another. Um, and so that kind of made the, the dust levitate above the surface. It wouldn't just be, you might kick up some dust and then it would immediately fall to the surface. You had this problem that they would kick up the dust and it would kind of hang around in a cloud for quite a while. And this would really impact the mechanical uh, devices that they had and also, you know, get everywhere all over their spacesuits and whatnot. So, so predominantly this is caused by the photoelectric effects from... Exactly, yes. When, when you do the sort of calculations to figure out what's the dominant effect, then, then yes, on the sunlit side of the moon, that really is what's dominating the charging. And so what's really interesting in terms of looking at these dust clouds and then how they might change on different points on the moon is that the sunlit side is going to be really different from the dark side. And so where you go from sunlight to darkness, what we call the terminator between the sun side and the, the dark side, it's thought that, that that could be where you almost get dust storms because the um, charging is so different on the sunlit side than it is on the dark side. And so this 
could, we're not sure about this, but, it, but there, there's certainly theories out there that suggest that what you would end up getting is almost a fountain effect where dust would levitate on the sunlit side and then drop down in the night on the dark side. And so you would end up having almost dust storms with winds and stuff in, in the dust, which is kind of exciting. Would this be on quite a small scale or would it be on, on quite a massive scale? A uh, bit of both, actually. I think it, if it works in that way, it would happen on a small scale near craters, for example because you would have a sunlit part and then a shadowed part on the, at the wall of the crater. And so that could happen on a small scale, maybe over a few tens of metres. Towards the terminator on the lunar surface, then this, this process might happen over hundreds of kilometres. And so it's a really exciting area of the moon that we think has a huge effect on this dust weather, if you like, um, near the surface. Um, and so um, being able to study that is going to be really important. So you're essentially getting storms and, and kind of, like you said, dust weather without having an atmosphere. Yeah. <laughs> so. Exactly. It's, it's essentially what passes for weather on the moon. Um, it's because there is no atmosphere, there's, there's very, very little uh, sort of neutral atoms uh, present near the surface. Dust really is lunar weather and so um, it's it's really interesting for us to look at how that weather how you would almost get weather systems because of the difference between the sunlit side and the, and the dark side of the moon so it's it's really interesting so you're going to be modeling now how do you actually go about modeling something like that can you can you ever measure it well the interesting thing is that there um, NASA have planned a mission to go measure uh, some of the properties of the lunar dust and it's going to be launched fingers crossed in September and it's called the LADI mission. Um, it's Lunar Atmosphere and Dust Environment Explorer. They have an instrument on this um, orbiting lunar module where they're going to sample the dust directly. So they actually have an instrument that will uh, measure how big the dust is, what the charges of the dust are for different heights above the surface. And that's going to give us so much more information than we have right now in order to try and look at where are the interesting places. You know, is this prediction that the difference between sunlit and, and dark side important for the, for, for the dust weather, if you like? Um, and so that mission is going to give us so much more information. And then we can look at our simulations and see how what we're getting right and what we're getting wrong. But at the moment, the simulations are taking very idealized representations of the dust. So just very simplified, thinking of the dust as little spherical balls, if you like, um, and looking at the charging processes in a very simple way, but trying to use these very simple equations that we have learned um, from looking at the solar wind in interplanetary space and looking at how uh, surfaces of, say, spacecraft and things behave in that plasma. So we take those equations that we know already and try and uh, apply them to a natural surface like the moon's surface, add in the, the, the dust and then see if we can make some predictions. So hopefully by the time the, the mission launches in September we might actually have some predictions that we can test with the data. Kind of ultimately, do you hope that by better understanding all this dust it'll help missions to the moon? Yes, definitely. We, um, one of the, the motivations for doing the, for doing the science is to actually try and help people design instrumentation, to design landers, to design even spacesuits that could operate in the moon without posing a hazard to the, the humans that are on the moon. And so, or even suggesting which locations on the moon might be better than others. Perhaps it will turn out that craters 
are afford some protection or maybe they'll be a dangerous place to be I don't know yet but that kind of information can help us design missions design the um, the equipment to go on those missions to ensure that we can minimize all the risks to the the equipment but most importantly to the humans that are going to be going as astronauts so it's exciting stuff brilliant thank you <laughs> Joining me now is Dr Jane Birkby from the University of Leiden and she's released a press release about um, detecting water on extrasolar planets. So can you tell us a little bit about how you go about detecting water in extrasolar planets? Okay, so the method that we use to do this is actually um, a variation of a technique that is probably fairly well known to your listeners. This is the radial velocity technique for detecting planets or the Doppler wobble technique, which is where you look at the star... And the star is doing this tiny little slow orbit, like a little dance, in a reaction to the gravitational influence of the planet. So it's a small, a small effect. What we've done is flip that technique on its head, and we're looking at the gravitational influence of the star on the planet, which is huge. So rather than doing like a tiny little wobble, the planet is going around its orbit at hundreds of thousands of miles per hour. And what we do is we look for the unique fingerprint of water in the spectrum of the planet's atmosphere and we see what happens is that those all the individual lines that make up the unique fingerprint of water over say the five hours that we looked at the system for actually shift in wavelength so they blue shift or red shift depending on what part of the orbit that you're looking at and from that we um, we match up those lines with a model that we have of water and from that we get the detection, like this unique fingerprint we can exactly match up, and that's how we can say that there's definitely water in this atmosphere. Okay, brilliant. So what type of extrasolar planets do you actually look at? Because I know there's, there's big ones that are close in, there's small ones that are close in, and, or ones that are further out. So which type do you actually yeah. look at? So, um, so far this technique we've only used on the hot Jupiter-type planets. So these uh, planets, so they're like Jupiter, but they're really close to the host star. So this particular one goes around its star in just over two days. So it's well within the orbit of Mercury. Um, and it's, uh, the planet itself is heated to, say, over 1,000 degrees uh, Celsius. So it's, it's a really extreme world. So although we found water, I guess the, the question that that would lead into is, is it habitable, this particular planet? And certainly not for this one. It's a much more extreme system. However, the technique that we've used... In the future, if you were to use a much larger telescope, um, which you would need, because if you want to look at smaller planets, they're even fainter than the uh, hot Jupiters we've been looking at. Um, but if you have something like the European Extremely Large Telescope, which will be a 39-metre telescope, when that comes online, we will be able to use this technique to actually study the atmospheres of much smaller possibly Earth analogue type uh, systems and actually start looking at their atmospheres, not just for very simple molecules that have been found before, like carbon monoxide, which is where this technique was first developed. But now we've found water and we hope to be able in the future to look for oxygen, methane, carbon dioxide, any kind of biosignature that might tell us something a bit more about the habitability of that planet. So by, by looking in this method, you can actually see kind of the composition of the atmosphere almost and see whether it is, you know, potentially habitable in some way. Yes, we're really trying to sort of break down the individual chemical makeup of the, the planetary atmosphere, really say, you know, what gases are in that atmosphere and from there try to infer other things about, about the planet itself. 
Um, one of the things that we can also study is how the temperature of the atmosphere changes as you go from sort of the surface up to very high altitudes. Um, and we can look for things like an inversion layer, which is on the Earth is like our stratosphere. So you get a temperature change as you go further up the atmosphere and then it flips back. Um, and that's why we get sort of cloud layers and things as well. Um, so we can look for those kind of structures in other planets as well. So it's not just chemical composition, but structure, like what does the atmosphere really, what is it really doing? How can you look at like the, the structure of the atmosphere? Is it just a slightly different signature in the spectrum? Yeah, so the different temperatures and the different pressures. So depending on how high up in the atmosphere you are, changes the pressure. The signature that you detect, the lines are slightly different. Um, the models change ever so slightly. So the, uh, the template that you're trying to match to the lines in your planet spectrum changes a little bit in reaction to temperature and pressure. And so from that, we can start to sort of constrain what, what models really do fit for that atmosphere. Okay, brilliant. So was there a selection procedure for the planets that you looked at? I mean, how many planets have you looked at? That's a good question. <laughs> so for this technique, we're, we're really only looking at planets that are already known. And we've done this for, ooh, let me think. So there's Tau Botus, 51 Pegasi. This one is HD 189733 um, and also HD 209458. Um, and the, those last two are sort of the, the poster childs of trans, they're actually transiting planets. But the technique actually works for non-transiting planets as well, which is important because not all planets transit. Yeah, so for the moment we've tried uh, for this four planets and obviously we're looking at more. And those are all the hot Jupiter planets and that's what we can really do with current instrumentation and the, the the key thing is is that this is done from the ground so we don't need to go into space and use expensive space telescopes this is all all from the ground um even though the earth's atmosphere can really obstruct you um we we find that even in some of like the the most opaque windows of the earth's atmosphere we can still use this technique so in the future you said you hope that it could be applied to kind of smaller planets do you have sort of a direct plan for the future sort of immediate future the immediate future so i think if we really want to look at sort of earth-like planets we'll need much bigger telescopes we did a, a few calculations um in a, another paper that was released by our project leader from this particular group of observations um from Inga Snellen. and he looked at if you had uh, an earth twin in a habitable zone of a M dwarf star. So these are stars that are about a third of the size of the sun and they're much cooler, but it means that the the brightness ratio between the planet and the star is more favorable. Um, and he calculated that if you wanted to look for oxygen, if you used an ELT, um, the habitable zone is about 11 days and you need to see enough, uh, this was for a transiting system, you need to see enough transits to build up your signal. So we call this a uh, signal to noise, like how sure are we that we see something is really there. And to do that, he worked out it would take five to ten years, which might seem like a long time. But at the end of that, you would know for sure if there was oxygen in the atmosphere of that Earth twin. For sure. So it's quite kind of, I don't know, I think although it's, it's a long time scale, I think once you find those, those systems when they're detected you know five to ten years later you really do know you can sort of point up in the sky and say that one that planet right there has got oxygen that's absolutely amazing <laughs> that you can do that and, and like you said it's kind of a long time but there are long uh, long period surveys of uh, planets of suns and stuff that do look at them for that amount of time yeah. 
So it, it wouldn't be a, a continuous observation. You wouldn't have to sit, point your telescope for that amount of time. You would just need to catch every single transit. So every 11 days, you'd need to look for, you know, a couple of hours, or I think it would be a little bit, a little bit longer than a couple of hours. But you know, spend a night looking at it and then wait for the next one. And if you did that for five to ten years, yeah, you would start to see the signals of oxygen if it was there. Okay, thank you very much for telling us all about your research and the best of luck with the the future of it. Great, thanks. It was great to talk to you. So I'm joined now by Jack O'Malley James from the University of St Andrews and you're a PhD student in astrobiology? Uh, That's right, yeah. So I've got a background in physics, biology and a little bit of astronomy. So So a little bit of everything. A little bit of everything. (laughs) And um, you've got a pretty interesting press release called The Last Survivors of the End of the World. Now that's a pretty emotive title. What does that mean? Um, so what we're looking at is the the end of the Earth's habitable lifetime. So it's not so much the end of the planet as the end of life on the planet. And this is looking looking over sort of three billion years into the future as the sun's luminosity increases as it ages along the main sequence. The knock-on effect is that we have a warming planet and eventually you reach a, a tipping point where temperatures reach a certain point where the oceans start to evaporate. And once you start evaporating the oceans, you start getting a lot more water vapour in the atmosphere. And water vapour is a very potent greenhouse gas, and then this sets a runaway greenhouse effect going. And so the knock-on effect for life is that not only do temperatures get hotter, but water availability goes down. And we know that life as we know it requires liquid water. Uh, And so habitats shrink, and the kind of things that can survive tend to be it sort of tends towards more extremophile microbes and we start to we very rapidly lose the bigger larger animals and plants and the things that we see around us today and which be like the first things you consider as life okay so you're, you're kind of you're looking in the future but this is all sort of natural heating by what lack of a better word so just caused by the sun aging and everything uh, yeah, so the, well, the sun ageing is the driver, but the main the thing that really ramps up this runaway greenhouse effect is the water vapour in the atmosphere. Uh, so it's a natural process, um, very different to the sort of man-made climate change that we hear about today and acting over a much, much longer time span. OK, so in the press release it, ta- it talks about some models that you've run. So what, what exactly have you been modelling and what did you hope to get from that? Um, so we've been modelling surface temperature over latitude. So it's a simple sort of climate model so it's essentially based on an energy balance climate model with a few extra bits bolted on and so it's uh, rather than just getting a mean surface temperature for the planet it splits it up based on latitude bands and then it also works out a sort of temperature profile with altitude in the atmosphere as well so we get a an idea of how temperature varies based on where you are on, on the planet and how high up you are or how low down below the ground you are and so that's the so temperature tends tends to go down as you go up and up as you go down from the surface if that makes sense yeah that makes sense (laughs) so the life kind of when you've been extrapolating and looking at kind of the effect it has on life have you been just looking at kind of human species or plant species as well um so we've looked at life as a whole starting off with the first big extinction uh, which happens before the ocean evaporation really gets going can i just ask what sort of species would that be? <laughs> uh, all animals and plants. Uh, so what happens is once you start heating the planet up, evaporation uh, increases. And so more water vapour in the atmosphere means you get more rain. And rain's very good at drawing carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So over time, as this process goes on, uh, carbon dioxide levels start decreasing as you get more and more, more and more water vapour, more rain, and so the, the cycle continues and continues. And plants 
require carbon dioxide to live. So if you start taking away carbon dioxide, you start reducing the number of plants that can survive. And so it tends to, you, you tend towards the hardier plant species that can cope with low CO2. But because levels keep going down, plant species keep dying off. Uh, and you start to lose the bigger land plants quite quickly. And then sort of plant life retreats into the sea. And then eventually you get microscopic plant life. And then that's it. It's gone over one, one and a bit billion years. So the knock-on effect from the plants becoming extinct is that the animal species, which all depend on plants, both for food and for oxygen, they start dying off as well, more or less simultaneously. And so that, in that way you start to lose all of the big organisms you see around us. And within just over a billion years, we're reduced to a world full of just microbes. So that's a massive knock-on effect so if the, the plant's losing the CO2 and then it just knocks on and, and all of the life really has a significant effect. Yeah, that's right. It's not going to be a, a quick, rapid extinction. I mean, this is something that's going to be happening gradually over a billion years, which is when you actually try and stop and think about it. It's an unimaginably long period of time. And the one thing we can't take account of is, because that's such a long period of time, life could sort of find a way to evolve and adapt to the conditions as they change but eventually you come across this limit where there's just not enough carbon dioxide to physically power photosynthesis and so then the whole thing falls apart so it's not an absolute time frame and we can't say uh, how quickly it will happen but it will happen okay so you said this was the first big extinction what did you mean by the first and um, so what this does is reduces us down to a world full of microbes a very diverse world full of microbes so then what happens as the oceans start evaporating and you really start losing all of the liquid water and temperatures start going up is that conditions for microbes then start to get worse and worse and you'll see a tendency towards the more extremophile microbes that can survive in high temperature, high pressure, high salinity environments with very low oxygen levels as well because we've got no plants producing oxygen. So there'll be a series of microbial extinctions until we're left with just these little pockets of extremophiles living in these little liquid water habitats and refuges scattered across the planet. So what sort of time frame is that? So that's another one to two billion years after we've had that one billion year of plant and animal extinction. So within three billion years from now. So it's still a very long yeah, it's still a very long time, but yeah. it's like, so just life is getting less and less diverse and, and more extreme microbe, basically. Yeah, that's right. And it's, it's almost like it's sort of the series of events that sort of led to the evolution of life that we have today uh, running in reverse. So the very beginning of life on Earth, it's thought that the first organisms that developed were adapted to very high temperatures and very extreme environments because that's what the early Earth was like. And so it's these kind of life forms that could be the last survivors as well as the first life on earth so it's with a nice poetic sort of <laughs> closed loop yeah i was just gonna say everything coming sort of full circle yeah. so kind of you've run these models on the earth have you looked at extra solar planets or the effect it would have on those um so that's that's what we want to try and do next so the earth was almost like a test case it was checking that everything works and it was a sort of nice neat little mini project um, so the next case would be to extrapolate that to maybe different kinds of, of planets, different environments. Because um, it would be very useful to know what the sort of biosignatures associated with these kind of biospheres would be. Because if you take the Earth as, as an example, for 
a large part of its habitable lifetime, there are just microbes living on the surface. If you were to randomly look at the Earth at some point during that time, you're much more likely to find microbes than anything else. So therefore, if we're looking for Earth-like planets in other solar systems, then it's probably more likely that we'll find microbial planets if we find planets with life on them than we will really advanced, complex uh, sort of biospheres like we see today. Are there any ideas as to the sort of signatures that you'd get from microbes, or is that still something that you'd need to you need to model and sort that out? Uh, so that's that's work that's ongoing. Uh, I know there has been some work that other people have done on the early Earth and what, my, what how biosignatures might have changed. One of the preliminary results from our models is that methane seems to be the only potential biosignature that builds up to possibly a detectable level. So one of the main problems with the, the dying planet is that you have so few sort of microbes left by the end that the, sort of the amount of gas that they produce and uh, release into the atmosphere is quite low, and so it doesn't really breach the detectable uh, threshold. So you'd almost need to actually land on the planet to see that there was something there. Which is obviously entirely impossible now at the moment. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> So thank you very much for telling us all about your research and um, we wish you all the best in your PhD. Thank you. That's all for this special episode. So all that's left to say is thanks to Sanjeev Gupta, Catherine Haymans, Jane Birkby, Claire Watt and Jack O'Malley-James for the interviews. The producer and editor was Christina Smith. So until next time, jot on. (laughs) 